my fellow humans, welcome back to another episode of Unite Humankind, a podcast where I travel around the United States in search of amazing individuals to hear their stories and opinions about our great country. For my consistent listeners following me across the states, I greatly appreciate your extended patience since I have not uploaded a podcast in weeks. Not only have I been destroyed by allergies here in the Midwest, I also just have been having too much fun. For those of you who have stuck around, I really appreciate it. A special shout out to my buddy Dan England for donating to Unite Humankind. Thanks so much, my man. You have no idea how much it has actually helped. Today's podcast is an impromptu conversation I had with an incredible young woman named Allison. I met her in the common area of my hostel in Moab, Utah. After she shared with me that she is a practicing sex therapist, I had to sit down with her to ask her questions about her life, as well as her opinions of our country. Allison shares with me her timeline of how she evolved from being a trader on Wall Street to becoming a sex therapist. But I had no idea that she planned on telling me, a stranger, a crazy plot twist in her story, which was being raped and held at gunpoint by a burglar. I'd like to inform my listeners that this podcast includes stories of sexual violence, and listener discretion is advised. I hope you all enjoy Allison's perspective of Wall Street, living on borrowed time, and completely changing her life. So tune in, drop out, sit back, and enjoy. Okay, Allison from Colorado. Thanks for letting me, like, just take up some of your totally. time Totally, yeah. Okay. God, where do I want to start? I guess we want to start with being a sex... Well, you, where did you grow up? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Connecticut. Okay. What yes. was that like? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was a really safe place to grow up. Um, but I don't know if you've ever heard of the movie Stepford Wives. Uh, it's this movie about um, this incredibly rich perfect town and this woman moves to this town and she later discovers that all of the wives are robots um and that's where they they filmed that in my town <laughs> that's what my town is like it's very rich very everyone's perfect um everyone's sort of robotic so yeah it's a very like waspy area very safe place to raise kids but it was you know very right. different from my lifestyle. Wow. So when you say like just rich, just a robotic rich woman. So yeah. did you grow up that way as well? Did you grow up? I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you know, when I graduated high school, it was important to me that I explore other, I went to University of Michigan, so I left the East coast, went mm -hmm. to the Midwest Very cool. for a while. Yeah. What do you remember like when you were in high school and then you switched from high school to college? Like, wow, I really want to get out of here where these people around me are really kind of suck. Like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, wow. So University of Michigan. And then what did you study? I studied economics. Economics. Yes. Why? Um, because, so, where I grew up, everyone kind of worked on Wall Street. Everyone took the train into New York City and worked in finance, and that's what both my parents did. They both worked on Wall Street, and I just said, when I was six years old, I'm going to be an investment banker, and, and I, like, studied my whole life to do that job, and I, you know, thought it would make me happy, and so when I graduated, I went to work on Wall Street, and I was a trader on Wall Street for a while. 
that's wild <laughs> and that's funny because like who you are now is just so different so different that. okay yes. so what's it like working on wall street oh my god it is crazy um i mean the hours are insane i had to be on the trading floor by 6 30 in the morning because mm-hmm. you had to be getting everything ready for the before the markets open and you're there you know for 12 hours some days and then after that you have to like go out and entertain your clients so i was this like 20 three-year-old girl taking out clients, you know, basically getting them drunk till all hours of the night. And, you know, there was, I will never, ever forget. I was at, um, a Christmas party hosted by one of our hedge fund clients. And, um, the night's like starting out really normal. Everyone there is from like the bank from work. And as the night goes on, I notice that like all the women are getting progressively hotter and hotter and hotter. (laughs) And I'm so naive at this point. I go up to my boss and I'm like, do all these women work for the bank? And he puts his arm around me and he's like, Allison, these women are paid to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) that was, that was working on Wall Street. Yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness. What else? I I don't even know what to ask. I mean, like. You don't really hear about women working on Wall Street. No. Like it's usually men. I was the only person on my team. Wow. Yeah, what was woman. that like? I was a little fratty. Yeah. It was definitely a bit of a frat boy scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of had to like carve out a place for you. But I also felt that they weren't, they didn't exclude me from anything. I think they kind of like valued my, my presence. But I didn't realize how much I would miss working with other women until I was in a situation where I was the only one. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And so how long did you do that for? I did that for several years, yeah. Um, and then I moved to Paris and worked um, for a fund in Paris for a few years. Well, what was that like? It was way better um, because, A, the hours in, in France are, are much better, like the work-life balance there is better, and, B, I was – so there's the – sell side and there's the buy side and finance trading is the sell side and then I went over to portfolio management which is the buy side so that's where like you're calling all the shots you know you're the one that's deciding what to invest in what companies and you've got all of those investment bankers like sucking up to you because <laughs> they want you to trade with them right um so they'll take you to concerts they'll take you to fancy restaurants they'll fly you around um just so that you'll do business with them so that was super fun it was very glamorous wow yeah i can imagine like you and all these like fancy suits yeah and you're like you're quite gorgeous too so i can imagine you walking around with like red lipstick you're like oh, this is me and i kick ass <laughs> it was there was very very like glamorous component to it but at the end of the day you know you're still sitting in your office with like multiple computer screens and just like excel spreadsheets open and you're like there's no meaning to what I'm doing my job is to make basically rich people even richer right like that's that's what it boils down to so how did why why did you leave when did you leave um you know I was sitting around the table with my team one day and we were discussing our investment in McDonald's and how the investment was doing really well. And I had just finished reading a report about how diabetes rates in India were going up 300% year over year over year. And it's because of all these Western fast food chains and Western diets moving into India. Mm -hmm. And I'm just looking around the table and they're all like, you know, so happy with our investment because of its emerging market presence. 
And I'm thinking not for one second is anyone right now considering like the health implications of what we're investing in. Wow. And, you know, we were invested in all these oil and gas companies and not for one second did we ask like, hey, maybe we should do something in more sustainable, renewable energy as opposed to oil and gas, you know, and it's just you invest in whatever is going to make you money. And there's really nothing deeper than that to it. And Mm -hmm. I just realized I, I need something more out of my life than to make money for wealthy people. Right. Yeah. That's interesting because, you know, people don't really think about that. It's like, oh, well, if it made me money, even though I'm working for this crackpot, you know, because that's how you become successful and have a life. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Are you okay in the sun? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Um, Okay, so you left Paris Mm -hmm. afterwards, and then so where did you go from there? So I came back to New York, and I wanted to just, like, redo my career at that point. So I ended up going and working for a non-profit, non anti-poverty nonprofit. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I was doing, um, their women's economic empowerment campaigns because, um, 75% of the world's extreme poor are women. Uh, it's very hard for them to have the same economic opportunities as men. Um, you know, in a lot of countries, it's illegal for them to have a bank account. It's illegal for them to have a job outside the house. So yeah, it was, it was really um, validating and important for me to do work that helps alleviate extreme poverty, but also really lifts women up as well. Cool. How long did you do that for? I did that for several years as well, yeah. How old are you? I'm 33. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you make it sound like you're like 50 at this point with all the work that you've <laughs> I, done. Yeah, I've changed careers a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Okay. So, nonprofit, and then after nonprofit, you. Yeah, well, so this is, I don't know how uh, dark you want to get with your podcast. Super dark, let's do it. Okay, I mean, it's real dark. <laughs> if you're down to share it. Uh, okay, well, um, I've never, like, talked about this publicly. I mean, I've talked about it with friends and family, but uh, here we go. So I was living um, in Brooklyn. I had an apartment um, by myself in Brooklyn, and, uh, you know, that's where the job was. And one night, um, July 25th, 2016, um, at one o'clock in the morning, uh, a man broke into my apartment, um, tied me up at gunpoint, raped me, um, you know, threatened to kill me over and over again. Uh, yeah, just basically, you know, came there to rob me, but also basically torture me for a couple hours. Um, and I, you know, managed to form like a relationship with him over the course of several hours. And at one point he was like, I have to kill you. Like, I just, I have to. Um, and I managed to like talk him out of it. And it was really, uh, powerful you know to have a gun to your head and just be like okay you know whatever happens is okay uh and just I don't know I know who I am with a gun to my head now and I really like who I am it was I was you know you just you just keep a level head and you think what you got to do next and that's it for a couple months leading up to this event I had been getting like really intense like something bad is going to happen to me. Something really bad is going to happen to me. Like, and I've never had anxiety in my life before. never had anything like that. And 
it was getting to the point where I literally made like a vision board and put it above my bed with giant letters, I'm safe. Cause I just felt like something, something is wrong. And I was in my apartment and I would like hear voices. Like um, my boyfriend was over and he left and it was at night and I, he leaves. And I hear this voice in my head, a man's voice saying like, I thought he would never leave. Like, cause and now I'm gonna like hurt you. And, um, and this one night I was in my house and I was like feeling this fear again. And I was like, okay, what's going on? And I'm a big meditator. So I was like, I'm going to sit down and meditate on this, figure out what's happening. Yeah. I sit down to meditate within five seconds. I burst into tears and out of my mouth comes, he's coming, he's coming, get out. And I freaked out and I ran to my boyfriend's house. Um, and then a week later it happened. And I just remember, so like the door of my bedroom was slightly ajar and you could see the front door from my bed. And I remember waking up to the sound of the door opening and seeing like a shadow come into my apartment. And the very first thing that I thought before any other emotion was, it's you. Like here it is. It felt like an appointment had shown up. Yeah. It was the craziest. And then immediately followed by fuck like <laughs> fuck like i know what this is right yeah oh my days jeez louise are you are you um religious at all or are you more spiritual i'm more spiritual okay yeah yeah mm-hmm. definitely yeah i i really feel like i had been getting warned for months you know like i would literally sit on the subway and repeat to myself over and over again i'm safe i'm safe i'm safe i'm safe and that's what I did that entire night long. That entire night long, I just, I was tied up and I just was like, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe. And I feel like it's what helped me keep my shit together. You know, I stayed super calm the whole time. And I think my calmness calmed him down. I think if I had been crying and screaming and frantic, like he would have killed me for sure. Yeah, definitely. But I think he was thrown by the fact that I was so calm. Yeah, you've probably touched on his humanity a I little did. bit. Yeah. yeah. Because I got to see him shift into like more of a human. He started like asking me questions about myself and so I'd like I'd ask him questions back about himself to keep him talking. And like I did see very much a human side of him, but then when they caught him and like the DA would talk to me about him, they were like, "No, this guy is like the worst sociopath we've ever seen. Like this guy is not human. Wow. Yeah. Getting chills. I like want to cry like yeah. that. I can't imagine, you know, I don't know what I would do. You know? Yeah. I mean, if you had told me, I, I remember thinking after it happened, I was like, if someone had told me that this was going to happen to me, I probably would have killed myself. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Just like save you yeah. the pain. <laughs> Just not. Yeah. But like, I'm glad someone didn't tell me. I mean, someone was telling me something in my head. Some, something was preparing me for it. But I truly don't regret that it happened. Like, it was the most intense thing a human can possibly go through. Yeah. And it's like, it's almost like you're in an enlightened state when it's happening. Like, you are, there's no thoughts going through your head. It is second by second by second by second. I'm a huge meditator. And it was, like, the most perfect state of meditation that you can be in, you know? Like, you're terrified. Yeah, but you're, like, in it. But you're in it, Yeah, you know? And I, like, almost, I, like, missed that state after. I had really bad Stockholm Syndrome afterwards for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and I almost like missed that state when it was over. Yeah, I guess that makes sense because I learned about it psychologically. What happens is that when your brain gets into a state of danger, it goes through every single memory in your mind to try and figure out how to get out of it. Yeah. So you're literally in your brain the whole time. So it makes sense. It was, but at the same time, it's not, you're not, you're not having this like internal monologue Mm -mm. like you usually have in everyday life. You're, you're like an animal. You're, you're like, it's indescribable the way that you are so, you're not worried about the past. You're not thinking about the future. You're thinking, What's happening this second? Now it's happening this second. Now it's happening this second. Okay, he's in that room. This, you know, like it's, it's, I can't describe it. I really can't describe it. So did he end up like letting you go or like what? He just untied you and then said, peace out. Like, (laughs) so, um, yeah, it had been like hours and he went through this phase where like, he was like, "I, I really like can't let you go. I have to kill you. And um, I kind of just like let him have this like external war with himself. You know, he was just like debating out loud what he should do. And I was just, you just have to like sit there and let him do the thing. And then finally he decided um, that he didn't want to kill me. He felt sorry. Um, But then for like 15 minutes he sat next to me and he just basically brainwashed me like if you move if you call the police if you do anything like I will come back and kill you like and he'd make me like repeat after him like what are you gonna do and it was like I'm not gonna do anything he's like I will come kill you I'm like yep and he's like I don't even have to come back other people are watching the building like he that was that was probably the part that fucked me up the most afterwards yeah because I would just like walk around being like looking over my shoulder yeah that was definitely the part that fucked me up for a while afterwards even after they caught him I was like he's still gonna come get me um but that said he finished his little brainwashing and then this is the craziest part so he had um there were zip ties he'd cut the ties earlier to make me go take a shower and then he'd like re-tied me back up with like something with a, a cord like a cable and he's like trying to untie me and he's really struggling with it and I'm like there are scissors in the kitchen you can just cut it and he's like no no like this is yours like this belongs to you I don't want to ruin it Yikes. it was a f- and finally so he untied the thing it was a, it was a hair straightener um and so he unties it like I'm still blindfolded and as soon as the tie because like it, it was so painful being tied up for that long um as soon as the ties are gone that is like the only time like some tears just started streaming down my face and I'm still blindfolded and we're sitting super close to each other and he's like why are you crying and I just say like I'm just so grateful that you untied me you know and he didn't say another word and he got up and he left wow yeah so you're you're living on borrowed time at this point. So you're kind of I yeah. <laughs> after so after that I I you know was a freaking mess. Uh, yeah. So I, I I had to like quit my job. I went to live with my dad for a little while. Um, and then my boyfriend at the time uh, moved us out to Colorado. So I I did have to like leave my whole life in New York City behind. Um, but I don't know. Like I had really severe PTSD for like a year and a half. But honestly, like, I feel like everyone should have a near-death experience. Like, it completely changes your whole life. It, it, 
I am grateful for what happened. Like my life is amazing today because you know, when something like that happens to you, everything's destroyed. Every concept of life itself is destroyed and you get to rebuild your life exactly the way that you want it to look. Uh -huh. And that's, you know, what I did. And I really like the life that I built for myself now today. Wow. Okay. Rewind like four steps. <laughs> so do you, cause that's extremely traumatic. Do you still hold any of that trauma today? For sure. Um, so like emotionally, psychologically, I'm you know, totally over it. I, like I said, I'm even like really grateful for it in a lot of ways. It's not something that I regret happened to me. My body has not let let go of it entirely. I still have a lot of issues sleeping. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like so I I do get bouts of insomnia that's pretty severe, um, and then it'll go away, but then it'll come back. So. That's probably something I'll struggle with. I mean, it happened in the middle of the night. Like, it's just something my body is, like, still on edge about. Right. Um, so, yeah, physically, I'm not fully recovered by any means. But I don't know. Like, I'm happy and I'm, you know, like, psychologically okay. So, right. <laughs> yeah. What about when it comes to dating? Oh, you know, that's not been an issue at all. Um, I... I will say my relationship with my partner at the time became incredibly codependent mm -hmm. because he basically had to support me emotionally, physically, financially for a year and a half after what happened. And he did so gladly. Like, it was a beautiful, loving relationship. But I had basically lost autonomy by the end. You know, I had basically, like, forgotten how to function as an adult by myself. Right. Um, so when we, you know, we decided at the end of that relationship, like we weren't really going in the same direction. We, we didn't want the same things for our future. So we, we made a decision to break up mutually. And even though it was very loving, um, it destroyed me cause I had to, it was like being taken off life support. Um, I had to like learn how to walk again on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was one of the most difficult but healing things I've ever done. I mean, it was it was excruciating at points, learning how to just function by myself again. But, um, you know, it ended up making me even stronger and happier when I did that, went through that process. Yeah. Do you have any advice for young women that are going through it? Because standing up for yourself is hard work. Yes. Any, like, advice for them? I would say you have to let yourself feel the pain. Um, I... I remember being so depressed at one point going through this breakup that I would just kind of let it, I would ruminate on it all day long. And I had some amazing advice from a therapist who was like, you need to just set aside five to 10 minutes a day where you let it all out. And then the rest of the day say, nope, right now is not the time for that. So I would go all day, anytime a sad thought would come into my head or a thought that I missed him would come into my head, I would say four o'clock, 4 p.m. we're going to do this. And at 4 p.m. every day, I would put on the saddest song <laughs> and I would bawl my eyes out, like absolutely like rolling on the floor, crying my eyes out. Mm -hmm. And then the song would end and I would be like, OK, see you tomorrow, you know? Wow. And that's that's how I got over it. What song was it? 
Oh, is this is very obscure, like kind of instrumental song by the oh. name by the band like Bier. I don't even know the name. It's like some Scandinavian like wailing song. <laughs> like, I don't even like, I don't even know how I found it. It came up on my Spotify, and I was like, "That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna cry to. Love it. Yeah. Oh my god. Well, you know, it's it's nice to hear that you're okay. You know, like that is because you know, I think people can choose whether or not they want yes. to come back from that or not. Yes. It is a choice that you make every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And I will say, I, do, I don't want to put it, that sounds like the responsibility is all on you. And if you don't make it, it's your fault. And I never want to blame someone for, for that. I will say I could not have done it without the support of all my friends and family. Mm-hmm. Like they carried me at times and I relied on them so heavily. And again, when you like go through a near death experience, you come out realizing really the only thing that matters is love and other people, you know, your friends and family. And they stepped up for me in the biggest way possible. And I cherish relationships so much more than I ever did. Mm. Okay. So does, is this leading up to how you became a sex therapist? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. I see the correlation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a pretty big correlation. Um, you know, after, after I went through that, I, had to go on my own journey of healing, you know, my sexuality because of what happened, the assault. And, um, you know, it started out just by like getting to a point of functioning um, and not having um, PTSD anymore. And then I noticed that usually that's where therapy drops you. Like they'll get you to a point of functioning. They'll get you to a point of like, okay, you're, you're quote unquote normal now, but they won't get you to a point of like, thriving in your sexuality. Mm. So after I had done all the therapy to recover from PTSD, I noticed that I still was just kind of like disconnected from my sexuality and my pleasure and my vibrancy. Uh, So I went to Thailand and lived at a tantra school in Thailand to become a tantra teacher. (laughs) That's so cool. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to go do this. Okay, so how long were you there for? Um, I will say my life is amazingly better right now and I've been able to do all these things because I won a bunch of money (laughs) in a lawsuit against this person okay so he was caught and I and I have been able to finance my life good (laughs) okay there you go a lot of money that I won (laughs) some good closure there we like it good closure yes yes um so I yes I moved to Thailand and I lived in a tantra school for a while and and got trained in like tantric sexuality okay so what does that mean tantra Oh, that's such a big question, and I challenge you to find anyone who has a very succinct definition to it. Um, So Tantra is in itself like this ancient spiritual practice. There's Hindu Tantra, there's Taoist Tantra, um, and it's, you know, it's a religion all in itself. And then there's one um, subsection of it dedicated to sexuality. And so now when you hear people talk about Tantra, that's what they're talking about typically, but it really is a lot bigger than that. So tantric sexuality is really about using um, sex as a meditation. So the like Taoists at least believed that everything in life can be used to get you closer to the divine. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go meditate on a mountaintop and sequester yourself from all of society. It was really a religion created for lay people who wanted to get closer to the divine in their everyday lives. And one of the ways that you can do that is through sex. Um, So using sex as 
uh, a way to elevate your consciousness um, is really the foundation of it. Cool. I've never heard of that. Yeah. You know, like, and I, I have dabbled in, like, the Eastern religions, and I read the philosophies mm-hmm. occasionally. But, like, I feel like it's so vast. There's so much to it. Yes. Okay. So what – how did you come to the decision that you wanted to just go to Thailand and – this. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. So I'm a big rock climber and I was at the climbing gym one day and I look over and there's this beautiful woman climbing next to me and I'm a good climber and she was amazing, but she also had this like femininity and vibrancy and magnetism about her. And I remember her saying like, Oh, that whole, like a climbing hold, that hold is so yummy and I, or like juicy. That hold is so juicy. And I'm like, who talks like that? (laughs) And I remember looking down and I was wearing all gray and I just felt gray. Uh I felt like disconnected from myself as a woman until I saw this like gorgeous climber and something just popped into my head and say like, go study Tantra, you know, cause I'd heard, I've heard of Tantra before. I'd read a little bit about it and it was like, you need to reconnect to your, femininity you need to reconnect to your sexuality like in a very powerful way mm-hmm. and so that's what I did cool yeah I've increasingly been meeting people on the road and whether they say it's the Lord Jesus Christ in their head or the universe or whatever everyone is starting to say at one point or another they've listened to that instinct in their head and it changes their life changes your whole life very cool yeah Okay, so you were out there for how how long were you out there for uh, a couple months okay yeah and then you came back and then I came back Um, and then I went, uh, and studied with a Tantra school in the U S for another year. Um, and so by the end of it, I came out as a certified, uh, Tantra teacher and sex and intimacy coach. Okay. Yes. And that's what you do now. And that's what I do now. So how does that, how did you, how, how, like (laughs) from Tantra to now, are you like your own office practitioner? Yes. Wow. Okay. How long does that take? Um, you know, as soon as I finished school, I pretty much started my own practice right away. Um, so it's been two years now that I've been practicing and it's a hustle, you know, it's, I absolutely love, love, love working with clients. If I could just work with clients all day long, I'd be so happy. But then when you own your own business, it's like, you have to build and run a website. You have to do all the accounting. You have to come up with marketing plans and do all the marketing. So there's a lot that goes into running your own practice, but at the same time, like, I absolutely love what I do. Mm. Okay, so when you say that you practice and you like help clients, mm-hmm. what is it that you do? So um, I actually see predominantly men. Um, I just found early on that I had an affinity for working with men. And some business advice that I got was in the beginning, find your niche. Like in the beginning, really try to pick something that's your niche and then you double down on that with your marketing. And when you've really established yourself, then you can expand out to other groups of people. But I found very early on that men are super comfortable talking to me and opening up and revealing parts of themselves to me that they don't ever talk about with other people. And, you know, bizarrely, despite everything that I've been through, I absolutely love men. I love connecting with men. Like, I, yeah, I do not, you know, hate men because of what happened to me in any way. And I just found that being with men in such an intimate way via this work is 
is healing for me for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And also I realized if I want to help women, probably the best way that I could do that is by helping men sexually at this point, you know? Wow. I love that you said that you love men. I mean, like I sidetrack, we can talk about it later. Like everyone that I've met, especially in Portland, like they just hate men out there. Oh my gosh. And it was just kind of wild, you know? Yeah. Because I think men are amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. They're they're fun, and they love to do stuff, and they have no fear, you know? And they listen most times. Like, if you tell them, like, no, don't don't touch me, oh, okay, sorry. Yeah. So, wonderful. I think that's super cool and very healthy. Um, So how long have you been doing that now? So now you're 33. Uh Uh-huh. So I've been doing it for two years. Okay. Yes. Cool. Wow. (laughs) I have so many questions, like, post-podcast. It's amazing. Good for you. Okay, so do you have anything else that you want to say as far as, like, sex? Do you have any advice, like, free advice? Yes, (laughs) free advice. Just in general? Sure. Okay, so I would say probably the thing that, and it's the cause of a lot of performance anxiety. It can be the cause of erectile issues. It can be the cause of why some people have difficulty reaching orgasm during sex. It's that people are not staying present in their bodies. They're going off in their head, off in fantasy. They're pretty checked out during sex, which is weird because it's something that we think about constantly. Yeah. And then when we're actually doing it, a lot of the times we're thinking about what do we have to do next or what movement do we have to do next or I really want to get to climax. Like you're just racing to a finish line and you're not fully in the moment. You're not fully in your body. Um, And also... Our breath tends to get very short and shallow when we're having sex, and that's like the quickest way to kill an orgasm or to prevent yourself from fully relaxing, so Mm -hmm. if you have any performance anxiety issues. So deep breathing is, slow deep breathing is the best tool for enhancing your orgasm, having stronger orgasms, getting yourself to orgasm if you struggle with that, getting your body to relax if you struggle with performance anxiety, and just staying present in your body so that you enjoy sex more. Honestly, it's such simple things that can cure lifelong issues in men and women. Mm. So we, I'll just jump into it, I guess. We were talking earlier about what's called the 1916 Project Mm. in schools. And what 1916 Project is, is they're basically starting with, and it's it's been created by the New York Times, I believe. They want to push this um, curriculum. And it starts with the first ship that came over to the United States with the 20-plus African slaves to be mm. sold off to colonists. And that's where they'd like to start our history. And reading more on it, it makes sense why they would want to do that. And I also understand the conservative push of like, no, we don't want to ruin what we've already ruined because you said earlier it's it's very white skewed. Mm-hmm. It white is. White male skewed. White male skewed. Yeah. You're totally right. I realized I said 1916 project when in actuality it's the 1619 project. I'd also like to clarify that the term white male skewed refers to the point of view in which our history is taught. Our history curriculum about the colonization of America is taught from the perspective of our founding fathers, who happened to be white. So, what would you like to see in history class if it were to be changed? Um, so, I would love there to be more information about the indigenous populations that lived 
on this continent in this country before we even arrived. I know that it might be difficult to gather some of that information, but um, I just think it's like a fascinating part of this nation that we don't know much about that's not taught in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I think it's strange that the New York Times, such a such a liberal newspaper would even want to start that late you know why wouldn't they want to start with like hey who lived on this land before white people got here right you know like what is i guess the the maybe that wouldn't be considered america then i don't know so maybe they want to start history at the beginning of america no because then they'd have to start after the revolutionary war Mm -hmm. yeah it's kind of like an arbitrary point for them to start history yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the major push. Like, you're also getting rid of so much other stuff that happened before that. Yeah. Know? So it makes sense. How do you feel about the country right now? Oh, God, I think it's a mess. I mean, I love this country. I'm genuinely scared. Um, I'm genuinely scared about just the division that there is here. And there's just so much anger and hatred and judgment on both sides for the other side. Um And you'd think, like, a global pandemic would maybe bring us together and it made things worse. Um, I honestly feel like at this trajectory, it's going to take something pretty horrific to bring us back together as a country. Mm. And I don't know what that is. Some sort of civil unrest, probably. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm worried, for sure. Yeah, definitely same. Um, How do you feel about the presidency? Like, how do you feel about who's in office right now? I mean, I don't know if your listeners are going to like this, but I, I love Biden. <laughs> I do. I really, really like him. Um, I loved Obama. Um, I, you know, through my work at this nonprofit, uh, I got to see both of them speak okay. in, in person. And I just thought that they have um, such genuine compassion for other people that I have not seen from the right. Um you know, when you listen to right politicians, it seems very fear-based. It seems very angry. Mm-hmm. It seems very protectionist. It does not seem to be uh, one of helping your fellow man. Right. Um, it seems very, yeah, uh, very fear-based um, and very angry. And... I understand there are a lot of reasons to be afraid and angry in the world right now, but I think we need politicians who are going to be more about uh, creating connections, fostering compassion, fostering, uh, you know, a desire to understand each other as opposed to villainize each other. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, from what I've seen from the right recently, that's, that's really the tone that I pick up. Sure. What news channels do you watch? Oh, I don't watch the news. <laughs> oh, yeah. okay. So we're going based off what we see from people. Yeah. Um, is there anything from, like, Biden's political agenda that you really enjoy? Yeah. Um, I really like how he is bringing focus back to uh, the environment and our commitment to uh, the Paris Accord that Trump took us out of immediately when he entered office. Mm-hmm. And people, oh, like, right-wing propaganda around that is like, 
the president wants to help Paris more than he wants to help our own people. And it's like, no, that's just the name of it. Literally, the accord is just all the countries coming together to agree to take action so that the climate doesn't heat to two degrees Celsius higher. Because at two degrees Celsius higher, literally the world starts to end. Yeah. So it's just an accord for us to say, like, hey, maybe let's reduce emissions so that the world doesn't end by, tw- it's like by 2050. Like, it's so close, too. Mm-hmm. And Trump took us out of it immediately. Immediately in getting into office, and he used this propaganda about it being pro Paris, and it's just the name of it. So I love that he put us back in the Paris Accord. Um, I love that he has a cabinet that's much more representative of the diverse American population. Um, I really like that he is pro raising the minimum wage, um, reforming education to make education more affordable for people. Uh, reforming healthcare further, hopefully, because the number one reason that people go bankrupt in this country is because of healthcare bills. Mm-hmm. And I think it's outrageous what we have to go through to get healthcare in this country. Um, and people say that it's socialism, and it's like, no, it's not socialism to have healthcare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, those he he's very much um, speaking to agendas that matter to me. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. I think healthcare in particular. I think insurance is the scam because we're paying for insurance, right? And it pays for like part of those bills and you still have the bills. When in reality, if you remove the third man, right? This, I had a doctor, I had surgery on my toe and my doctor was telling me about this. He's like, think about if you didn't have insurance. Do you have insurance yeah. right now? Okay. I mean, but it's terrible. It's basically catastrophe insurance. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So at that point, you shouldn't be paying for something. You should be putting that same amount of money into like a piggy bank. Right. Right. Exactly. And that you have it readily available. So... My doctor was saying, if you took out insurance and you have all of these doctors coming out of med school with loads of student debt, mm-hmm. you know, and they have to do the residency and they have to do this and this. Every time you do, like, let's say this doctor in specific example, mm-hmm. he could only do one toe surgery per day because if he did multiple toes, he gets half of each price per toe. Yeah. So the first toe is whole price, and then the second one is half price, and then a fourth and an eighth, because insurance takes out that cut. Oh, my gosh. So he says to take out the insurance, if you're a new starting doctor, maybe you work for kind of like a crappy practice, and you only make 75 because you don't have the experience. And then you can pick which doctor you want to go to and pay for what you can afford. Yeah. You know? Totally. So I definitely think health in the hospitals. Oh, my God. Hospitals just screw you on stuff. Yeah, exactly. Because they can get away with it. Um, So when I was working in Paris, we had... We would have CEOs of companies come in and meet with us and get us try to get us to invest in their companies. And we had um, a medical technology CEO come in and pitch us their product. And it was, you know, some fancy new hip or knee replacement product. And, you know, they sold this product all around the world. And he would brag to us and say, you know, we sell it for, let's say, $1,000 in Europe we can sell this product for eight to nine times that amount in the U.S. because of their insurance set, set up there. Right. Like, they just can take advantage of people so much because of the way that our healthcare situation is. Wow. Yeah. It needs to be looked at, definitely. I don't... Yeah. Do you believe in free healthcare, like universal healthcare? I do. Why? I mean, because I lived in France. I lived in a country that had that. Mm-hmm. And people think taxes in Europe are a lot higher than the U.S. They are not. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a lie that we've been fed. 
their tax dollars just get put to better use over there. So they'll get put to free education. They'll get put to education, uh, health care. Um, so I had amazing health care while I was over there. And it didn't cost me much more at all than living in the U.S. Like our cost of living in the U.S. is higher than Europe because of all this out-of-pocket stuff that we pay that they don't. Interesting. Yeah. So it's the misuse of our tax dollars. Yes. Where do you think our tax dollars are going? Defense. You're so right. Yeah. You're so right. Yeah. The military, it's the military industrial complex, right? I had that thought to myself. I'm like, okay, weapons need to make money, right? And how do they sell? You make war, you know, that's... And then they get kids who can't afford college to sign up to go to the military to get mm-hmm. education paid for. No other country in the developed world basically makes you trade off losing your life to get an education. From an economics major at the University of Michigan and then worked on Wall Street for years, trickle-down economics is completely ineffectual. Basically what it does is it gives very, very wealthy people tax cuts. And the theory is that when those rich people get tax cuts, they'll spend all that money and it'll trickle down to poor people who, you know, run the shops that they spend that money in. Right. That is not what happens. When rich people get tax cuts, they spend some of it, but they take the vast majority of it and they invest it in the stock market. They put it offshore. They make it non-taxable. It does not re-enter the economy. When you give middle and lower class people tax cuts, 95% of it goes back into the economy, enriching everyone. Mm. Um, So tax cuts to the rich really just help the rich. It does not help the overall economy. Tax cuts to the lower and middle classes, and even upper middle class, is what helps the economy. So does Biden plan on taxing the rich more or giving tax cuts to the middle and lower class? I don't know Biden's tax plan, but Mm. I know he's not for trickle-down economics, which is... I mean, it's there's trickle down economics started in the early 80s, and there's been now decades worth of research that has shown it does not work at all. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I learned through people. But this is the thing the Republican, I'm sorry, the Republican propaganda machine is that no, give tax cuts to the wealthy. They've gotten an entire group of people, millions of people in America, to vote against their economic interests because they've been fed a lie that that's. It's actually working for them, and it's not at all. Mm-hmm. American poor are getting poorer, and they've got no access to education, and then they've got healthcare debt. No one is helping the American poor at all, yeah. especially not the Republicans. Interesting. That's interesting, because like I've been fed lies all my life, you know. But it doesn't mean I'm a bad person. I've just been lied to. Totally. You know, and that's <laughs> like 80% of the population. Exactly. You know? Thank you so much oh, for welcome. really going in depth with me and being patient. I really appreciate you're it. You're so welcome. Thank you for asking these questions. Yeah, it's it's fun. So um, any final thoughts, whether it's about women or enjoying your life? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh my God. I, I I would just say, you know, life is insanely short and it can be taken from us at any moment in the middle of the night. So find what you're passionate about and do that. Find someone you're passionate about and go all in. Find activities that you love and pursue them. Like life is so, so short. And 
prioritize your sex lives as well because that is a beautiful aspect of life and I know in this country and this world we have so much wounding around sex and it's worth going in and exploring and healing and expanding um, you know your experience of sex as well. To be honest I was really apprehensive to talk to Allison about politics mainly because I was afraid of being attacked for my right-leaning points of view after I found out that she leaned left. You may have noticed that I agreed with her on different points she made, different points that I wish I would have reworded instead of just solidly agreeing. However, having conversations with people that think differently from you are important and a practice. This was only my first constructive conversation I had with someone who I disagreed with, and although I was quick to agree with many points, she did help me listen, challenge my perspective, and think about it after the conversation. Before I let you all go, I do implore you all to do your own research and admit when you don't know the answers to questions. Research Biden's tax plan, the Paris Accord, trickle-down economics, and raising the minimum wage. Who does it affect, who does it help, and who does it hurt? Read the actual fine print instead of summarized versions created by third parties as well. Third parties, like CNN and Fox News, mostly lean in a biased fashion, and the fine print most oftentimes is easy enough to read. Special thanks to Allison for sharing her opinions with me and helping me communicate effectively. I wish the same for everyone else who's listening and have great conversations with people in the future. I hope you all have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.